You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We have been in discussion over the last couple of weeks about God's will for our life. Paul is transitioning here in chapter 4. Up to this point in 1 Thessalonians, up to this point in our discussion, Paul has been recapping a lot. He has been recapping to this church of Thessalonica what he taught them when he was physically there with them. And so it's been a, it's been a big review a big review session for them. And now as he moves into chapter 4, he is doing what we said he wanted to do in chapter 3 if he ever gets to them again. He is wanting to uh, add to their faith or fill up what is lacking in their faith. Basically, he wants to continue their discipleship. There are things that they need to be taught that they are either still wrestling with or haven't been told yet up to this point. So chapter 4 marks a transition where we are getting new teaching, new information being given to this church at Thessalonica. So we've been looking at the overall concept of sanctification. We defined it as the progressive work in our life by the Holy Spirit where we become more and more free from sin, more and more like Christ in our actual lives. That um, God purchases us, but doesn't leave us in that condition in which He purchased us. He purchases us and then makes us His, basically. He transforms us. We kind of use the illustration, it's like I'm an investor purchasing a dilapidated, torn up house. Because he sees it as something that is going to be made good. And so he takes the house, sees the value in it, but doesn't leave it like that. He radically shapes it, radically transforms it to where it becomes more and more his because he's putting his stamp on it. That's what God does to us in our salvation. He saves us as sinners. He saves us in our dilapidated condition. We have nothing to offer him. No good works earn our salvation. But he takes us in that sinful condition and transforms us and makes us like Christ. He makes us holy. Daily, he is moving us towards righteousness. Okay? Um, This week, we move more into the text as we begin to see what Paul had in mind for this church specifically in the area of sanctification. It says in chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, as I was beginning to look at this, it's it's a difficult topic to, to teach on to a group of people who have predominantly grown up in church. I mean, Paul's basically saying, don't engage in sexual immorality. You know, so it would be very easy to stand up here and say, hey... Don't engage in sexual immorality. All right, let's go home. Because we, we've heard that. Like, we know that. You've grown up in church. You know what Scripture has to teach about this topic. So my hope in looking at what Paul has to say is that we, 
we understand it from the, from the angle of why. why. Why is God telling us this? Why is God telling us not to engage in sexual immorality? What does God get out of it? Like, why is this important to God? Why was it important to Paul to pass this along? Now, I've told you leading up to this that I think that, that Satan, demons, satanic forces, when they seek to destroy a church, and we've, we've looked in context in Scripture, how we don't want to put too, too much emphasis on spiritual warfare, but we don't want to dismiss spiritual warfare as though it's non-existent. We've seen in Scripture that Satan wants to stop the plans of God Specifically in the local church, that he wants to hinder sanctification. I told you that I think our church is set up, maybe no different than other churches, but it's certainly set up for Satan to attack us in the area of sexual immorality. We've got a lot of young people who who are not married, who do not have the uh, ability to enjoy sex the way that God has designed it for the time being. Uh, But we've also got families who are... Uh, potentially subjected to this in different ways. I could probably go down the road here and tell you individually why I think that sexual temptation could come your way through what Satan wants to do by destroying our church. I think every one of us is subjected to this. We're in a situation where we're trying to raise up elders in our church, men who have a desire. We're trying to be very intentional to teach them what it means to lead a church with the understanding that they're going to be under the attack of Satan. That Satan would love no more than to destroy our church through fallen leadership. And so we have to be on guard that we are raising up people who have never served in leadership before in a church to serve in our church in leadership, and they will be the subject of attack for Satan's forces. Our church, our church is set up to be attacked in this way, and it's important that we be on guard. That we be on guard. Paul saw it as very important that this church be on guard against sexual immorality. Now, they lived in a very sexually explicit time, maybe even more so than our time. Now, granted, they didn't have TV and they didn't have Internet, but think about this. Our, our culture here in America is at least shaped somewhat by the fact that we were founded on uh, Judeo-Christian morals. That there's at least some resistance to blatant free sex however you want to in our culture because it did have a Christian influence as it, as, as it was started. And especially in this area, there's a lot of people who are um, at least somewhat influenced by Christian morals. The, the, the city of Thessalonica had no church. They had no Christianity around them. So it was blatant, do whatever you want to sexually. So no, they didn't have internet, they didn't have TV, they didn't have the same avenues of temptation like we do, but they also didn't have any type of Christian influence to resist doing what they wanted to do. There was no background for them to think that something was off limits. It was a very gross sexual time for them. It's a very gross sexual time for us. I think Jason was mentioning this maybe in their group this morning. Um, Me and Lauren and my mom were talking about this yesterday. Tim Tebow, who's a guy who hit hit the NFL world and has now hit the entire world with his fame in the area of football, and he's garnered a lot of attention because of his stance towards his religious beliefs, that he claims to be a born-again believer who has demonstrated, maybe more so than any celebrity that I've ever seen who's claimed to be a Christian, that he backs that up with his lifestyle, the things that he does in his um, his off time, even his perspective about sports and what he's doing in general, that this isn't the most important thing in his life. That he's got, he's got bigger agendas for why he even plays football. And he's recently come under attack being moved from Denver, which is a remote area out west, doesn't garner a lot of attention, to New York City, possibly the 
the worst place for him to go if he's trying to get away from attack. And now that he's there, already we're seeing that the New York media wants nothing more than to tear him down and destroy his testimony. And there's a website that's come out that's offering a million dollars to any woman who can prove that she's had sexual relations with him. And the man's under attack. He's under attack spiritually. He's under attack sexually because of his stance that he wants to do what God has called him to do. He is very vocal. This is God's will for my life. This is God's will for my life. Holiness. And he has come under attack. And I'm afraid that our church can come under attack as well. And so it's important that we are um, aware of this attack. And that we're preventative about this attack. That we take steps now to prevent this from happening in our church. 1 Thessalonians 4. Kind of set the stage here real quick for what he wants to say to us about sexual immorality. It says, finally, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Now, remember, I told you this instruction flows from Paul's desire to supply what is lacking in their discipleship about sex, basically. He says, I've got to teach you more about um, what it means to follow God, specifically in the area of sex. And so I need to fill up what is lacking in your faith. You need better understanding of God's word in this area. You need to trust God more about sex. Is basically what Paul is saying here. And it's preventative teaching. It's preventative, meaning 1 Corinthians 5. Paul's writing a letter to the church at Corinth. Does anybody know what 1 Corinthians 5 has to do with? What's he addressing in 1 Corinthians 5? Yeah, it's, it's a guy who's basically sleeping with his stepmom. Okay, I mean, He's writing a letter to Corinth and he says, we got an issue here at your church. You've got a, a guy who was sleeping with his dad's wife. Doesn't call him his mom, so it's, it's probably his stepmom or something like that. Says so he's sleeping with sleeping with the stepmom. And, and Paul says that's that's something that even like lost people would say is bad. Like that, that's Jerry Springer type stuff. Like that that belongs in a totally different avenue. Like we're free with our sex, we're gonna do things the way we want to, but dude, like that's off limits. Like you don't have sex with your stepmom, is basically what Paul says. He says, even the lost people get that. But he doesn't address the situation here in First Thessalonians. He doesn't write to them and say, hey, we've got to clean this up. This is what you guys are doing. He just says, you've received our instruction, and I'm encouraging you to continue receiving it more and more. So he's not, he's not addressing a situation that's happening. So that would be my encouragement to you this morning. Don't tune this out because, yes, you already know that sex outside of marriage is wrong, and you're not doing it right now, so this doesn't apply. Because to some degree, it didn't really apply to everybody at the church of Thessalonica. But he's saying, you've got to get this. We need to be preventative about this happening. So he's not addressing a situation. He's hoping to not have to address future situations. He says, we ask and we urge you. Now the Greek understanding of these two words, it's a gentle request by co-equals. Basically Paul saying, as a friend, I'm asking you to, to, to listen to me about this topic. When he says, I urge you, it's the, it's the same Root word for the Holy Spirit that we've talked about before. Remember we've used that, the, the paraclete word for, for the Holy Spirit being a comforter and an encourager to us. The same root word being here that Paul says, I want to urge you. So we get this picture of him functioning kind of like the Holy Spirit. He's coming alongside this church and pointing them towards their sanctification. He's trying to be a physical manifestation of what the Holy Spirit does for us. He's saying, I'm urging you to listen to this teaching. Then we see what Paul's ultimate concern for them is. He says, 
We're asking you, we're urging you to receive from us how you, how you ought to walk and to please God. He says, I'm ultimately concerned about you pleasing God. Because we're going to see that ultimately sexual immorality is pleasing yourself. That when we engage in illicit sexual activity, it's because our motivation and our mindset is to please myself. And we talked about that a little bit in our group this morning. That when we step outside the bounds of what God has instituted for sex, it is ultimately to please ourselves. It's distrusting what God says will ultimately please us. And we're saying, I want to please myself. I want to do it this way. Paul says, my motivation is that, that you please God. That you're God-pleasers, not self-pleasers. Okay? Um, I love the fact that he affirms their obedience up to this point. He affirms it up to this point and calls for continued obedience moving forward. He says, basically I'm going to write to you now about how to walk and how to please God, just like you're already doing. Again, I think very descriptive of our church. That for the... To my knowledge, as a church, we are being obedient in this area. We're striving for obedience. We're confessing when we fall. We're not um, hardened to any type of sexual sin in our church, to my knowledge. So I think we're very similar to Thessalonica. We don't have any issues that I know that need to be addressed. To my knowledge, everybody's striving to be faithful in this area. But we need continued instruction about this. Paul says, I want to instruct you about it so that you'll continue to do this more and more. And that goes back to what we said about sanctification. It never fully happens until Jesus comes back. So our mindset always has to be more and more holiness moving forward. That's sanctification. Adding to our holiness daily moving forward. It would be easy for the Thessalonian church to get comfortable with all the commendation they've received from Paul up to this point. Think about it. I mean, we've looked at chapters 1, 2, and 3, and Paul is just constantly, over and over, praising them for how they responded. He says, your faith is sounded forth to where everybody knows that you're Christians in chapter 1. He says, you received the word like it really is, the word of God, not word of man. So it would have been very easy for the Thessalonians to say, we are a great church. I mean, think about it. Let's reread chapter 1, 2, and 3. Because they would have received this letter, and someone would have set up and probably read it to the church. Hey, read chapter 1, 2, and 3 again, because apparently we're doing things really good here. It would have been very easy for them to grow complacent, thinking, all right, we're good. Like we, Apparently we're doing really good. Paul says, yeah, but you've got to do more. Like You've got to be doing this more and more. So he's pushing them to not be satisfied. Philippians 3, 12 through 16, Paul says that he is not satisfied with his own life. But he's forgetting those things that lie in the past. And he's looking forward ahead. He's continuing to pursue Christ moving forward. Okay, so Paul's not content with his past. He wants to continually be improving. He wants more and more holiness in his life. Paul says live in holiness, specifically sexual holiness. He wants them to be more and more free from sexual sin. Then he says, verse 2, For you know what instructions we gave you, through the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that word instruction is a little bit more forceful than the co-equal encouragement that was listed in the very beginning. Here we've got military commands, basically. Military commands aren't optional, right? Like you can you can either take or not take the advice of a co-equal friend, but when you get your military commands, I mean that's what you have to do. And he says, We've already given you the instructions about this. Through the Lord Jesus. They come directly from the Lord Jesus. Then verse 3. For this is the will of God. 
your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you learn how to control his own body in holiness and in honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. We're going to get as far as we can today. I don't know how far we'll get in these notes. I've got a lot of them, which is why your individual notes are lacking in a lot of stuff being there. You got plenty of stuff to, plenty of area to write stuff down, but I didn't have time to actually um, fill out the notes for you. So if you would like a copy of the notes later on, you can let me know and I can email those to you. I want us today to look at what God's will is for sex in our life. He says that we're to abstain from sexual immorality. So we're going to look at the the, the negative aspect, what God doesn't want, and the positive aspect, what God does want for us in our life. What is God's will for sex? Number one, God's will defined. God's will defined. Let's look at what society says about sex. I wrote down some things about what society would like for us to understand that our will for sex should be. Continued or um, any consensual sex is okay. That's what society would like for us to say, to believe, starting off. Any consensual sex is okay. No moral restrictions should be placed on it. Sex is for fun and pleasure. Enjoy it with anyone, anytime. Instant gratification is better than delayed satisfaction. And then we talked about this in our group this morning. Sexual satisfaction is the most important factor to good marriage. That's what our society wants us to believe. That sexual satisfaction is the most important thing to a good marriage. That's why there's, there's the mindset that you should try it out before you're married to see if you're compatible. To see if this works. To see if you need to find somebody else. Will you be satisfied sexually with this person moving forward? Now in trying to teach us these things, society often contradicts itself. And we talked about this in our groups this morning as well. Society would say that consensual sex is okay, but then it even puts parameters on that as well, that you can't have it with, a, with an underage person. Even if the underage person is saying, yeah, I want to do this, our law frowns on that. Our law punishes that. It says this is unacceptable. So consensual sex is not okay when it comes to age requirements. And, and I was sharing with the group this morning that even that shows us that there's a law about sex written on our hearts. But as far gone as society is, even society recognizes there's some things that shouldn't be happening. Even with the case in 1 Corinthians 15, or 1 Corinthians 5, don't have sex with your stepmom. Like, like that's a general agreed upon rule probably in our society that if that happens, that's, that's just going too far. Like, have sex however you want to, with whoever you want to, but don't do that. Like, that's just, No. Even a lost society recognizes that. There's a law written on the heart. Romans 1 says that God has given people over to their sexual desires to where all kinds of bad stuff happens. But even in the far gone perspective that, that our lost world has, even our lost world wants to put some rules on sex. Even the lost world that, that criticizes Christianity for putting parameters up about sex, even the lost world puts parameters it shows us that there's a law written on our hearts. So society says some of these things, that we should pursue this. What does God say? What does God say? You may want to write this down. This is what God says about his will for sex. To enjoy sex with a Christian spouse regularly. To enjoy sex with a Christian spouse regularly or 
remain single and serve God unhindered. God's perspective on this is that we enjoy sex with a Christian spouse regularly. We've looked at the passage in 1 Corinthians 7 where where Paul says, Don't withhold your body from your husband or don't withhold your body from your, uh, your wife. Because in doing that, unless you're doing it for a short amount of time, for fasting and prayer, then you give Satan a doorway. You give Satan a doorway to rip your marriage apart through sex. You will give your spouse... The, the, temp, the increased temptation to step out of it to go find sex somewhere else. So Paul says, look, if you're married, you've got to be joined together regularly. Okay? 1 Corinthians 7. Let's go there. First Corinthians 7, verse, um, verse 8. It says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul goes on to explain why he would call a single person or a widowed person to stay single. He says in doing that, you're unhindered in your service to God. The amount of responsibility that you have greatly decreases because you're single. So you have more free time to serve God. Me and Chris were having a conversation about this. He said that personally he feels a greater responsibility to use his time for God's service because he doesn't have the same responsibilities that I do with a wife and a soon-to-be kid. That's right in line with what Paul's saying. And Paul actually says, I would encourage this. From Paul's perspective, it's preferable to be single. Because you don't have the responsibilities of the family. You're able to serve God unhindered. But Paul also says, I really encourage marriage if your biological makeup is one to where you really desire the sexual relationship that God has created you with. He says the way that you fulfill those desires is in a godly marriage. So Paul says, here's your two options. This is what God says about sex. Either you recognize I can live without it. I'm called to singleness. I can live without it. It's okay for me not to have this. It's not something that's going to mess me up. It's not going to be a constant temptation. I'm going to be able to put these desires aside to focus my attention on serving God. Or you recognize it and say, nope, I need to get married. This is going to be... Far too hard to live single for the rest of my life. There are desires that God has given me that are very good that need to be fulfilled in the way that he's designed it. So I need to get married. That's Paul's instructions about what God has to say about sex that we enjoy with a Christian spouse regularly or we remain single. Sexual immorality. What he tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4 is off limits. This is what also God says in the negative sense. It's the Greek word pornea. Which is where we get the word pornography from in our society. It's any sexual activity. Any sexual activity outside the bonds of heterosexual, God-honoring marriage. <coughs> kind, of a, um, <coughs> kind of a broad definition that includes a lot of different things. It's any... It's um, any sexual activity 
outside the bonds of heterosexual, God-honoring marriage. I'm going to explain to you what I mean by God-honoring here in a second. Any sexual activity outside the bonds of heterosexual, God-honoring marriage. Now, this would include fornication. Fornication is sex before marriage. That would obviously not fall in line with God's definition for right sex. So sex before marriage, fornication, off-limits. Adultery, sex outside of marriage. This is between someone who is married outside the covenant relationship. So fornication, before marriage, adultery, while you're married with another partner. Homosexuality, same gender sex. Lust or pornography and everything that comes with that. Matthew 5, 27-30, Jesus helps correct their misunderstanding about what it means to commit adultery. He raises the standard, right? He says that um, you guys think that you've never engaged in sexual activity and you think you're okay, but I'm here to tell you that if you even think about it, if you even think about it, you're in sin. Okay, so lust, pornography... Our society wants us to think about sex. Our, our society wants us, to desire, wants us to desire sex improperly. God, according to his definition, would say that this is sexual immorality. Now, if we're defining right sex as, in, as um, enjoying sex with a Christian spouse inside the confines of marriage, heterosexual sex, is there anything that would make a heterosexual Marriage relationship off limits. Does God give us any parameters about, okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to marry someone of the opposite sex. Is there anything that we would be guilty of being disobedient in that area? Like pursuing opposite sex marriage. Is there anything that God tells us, well, you, you, you won't be able to do this even as you pursue um, a heterosexual relationship? Can you think of any guidelines that we're told, even in pursuing a heterosexual relationship, you can't pursue it this way? Okay, unbelievers are off limits. Okay, unbelievers are off limits. First, Second Corinthians six. Second Corinthians six fourteen. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. So Paul gives instruction here and he says, look, this is what God has to say about it. You cannot be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Okay? You cannot pursue a marriage relationship with an unbeliever and be uh, pleasing to God. God would say, unbelievers need to be married. Believers need to be married. When you try to mix the two, everything gets off kilter. Okay, so we would say that based on what scripture says, heterosexual relationship with an unbeliever, sexual immorality. Like it can't happen. It's it's against God's plan. It's against God's desire. We'll talk in a minute why that's the case. Anything else that would would prohibit you from marrying someone of the opposite sex besides, okay, you've resolved I'm going to marry someone of the opposite sex. I'm going to marry someone that's a believer. Anything else that has to be considered to make sure that you're not being disobedient. Would, uh, would being unequally yoked fall under the category of marrying a woman? Marrying what? Uh, like being unequally yoked, like that would fall under the category. Because the first people talk about like 
Well, no, it's you're called to different ministries. I don't know, like like missionary dating. Yeah, like I'm getting. I'm called to missions, and you're called to support missions. Like, were you talking about how Like I'm called to marry an unbeliever. No, I'm asking. Like, does okay? Here's the question: What does like, do you mean unequal yoke as far as I, we got two different callings in our life? Right, yeah. Um, I think that's helpful to consider. I don't think that's the context of what he's talking about. Okay. Like saying that one person wants to go to the mission field and another one doesn't. I think that's logical. Like, we probably shouldn't be together. Um, I don't know that that's his specific intention there. But, yeah, like if I was doing marital counseling with someone and this person said, I want to live in Uganda for the rest of my life. And this person said, I want to, I want to live in Beverly Hills for the rest of my life. And probably need to reconsider this relationship. Like it's probably not going to work long term. Um, so yeah, that, that could probably fall into that. I think specifically he's trying to say, believer, unbeliever, they don't have anything in common when it comes to the most important thing to have in common. Anything else though that would say you can't do this either with a heterosexual relationship? Um, it probably is, but I don't know what the question means. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. You're on the right track. Wait, what about the widows? How do widows work? Okay, don't seek to have more than one wife. All right. We would say that polygamy would be. Um, Wait, no, but you were talking. She's saying don't have more than one wife. Hey, I'll tell you what I'm thinking about. Um, let's go ahead and hone right in on what I'm thinking about. Matthew chapter 5. And we know that Scripture has some, some strong things to say about divorce. Um, it has some strong things to say about not getting a divorce. Um, in Matthew chapter 531, though, it says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, this is still in the same context of, let me correct your thinking. Let me correct your thinking about adultery. Adultery is not just you having physical contact. It's you even thinking about wanting to have physical contact. So he's correcting their mindset about everything that they think is true about the law. He comes to divorce and he says, it's also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And they had really abused this to the point that um, they were saying that if, if she was being just a bad wife, you could let her go. You could just get rid of her. Jesus raises the standard of marriage again and says, but I say to everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So not only when you're considering marriage do you have to pick a heterosexual situation, you have to find someone who is a believer. I think biblically you have to find someone who, if they are divorced, are divorced on the biblical grounds that Jesus has permitted here. He says if it's not over sexual immorality, if the divorce happened because two people just got tired of each other and they went their separate ways, he says you do not marry that person or you cause them to commit adultery. And you commit adultery with that person if you marry. That doesn't always get considered in our society, even in the context of the church. 
People get divorced more regularly maybe than they have in the past in, in, the, in the context of the church. But then we also encourage for divorced people to get remarried. And I think there's, there's options for them to get remarried. But I think Jesus limits the options right here. He says, unless it's over sexual immorality, don't go near that. Don't go near pursuing a relationship with that person because that is adultery. So heterosexual, got to be a believer, and if they're divorced, it's got to be on biblical grounds or else we're getting into sexual immorality here. All right, so some strong teaching by God about what this looks like and, and how sex is to be enjoyed by the Christian. Let's think of some reasons why he tells us not to do these things. Why he would tell us not to do these things. Why is it, because remember we've talked about the fact, I don't want to do what God tells me to do just because he tells me to do it. I want to understand the reasoning behind it. Why is it good for me not to do this? Because I believe in a good God who doesn't just make up laws to take my joy away. He has given me laws for my good. So why are these laws good? Because everything in society would tell you, you're in high school, you're in college, have sex with whoever you want to until you're tied down to one person for the rest of your life when you get married. Do whatever you want to. Fornication. Why would sex before marriage be bad for me? One, it's going to breed discontentment in me when I am married. It's going to breed discontentment. The same for pornography. When I expose myself to all different kinds of sexual relationships, when I experience what this person's like, this person's like, this person's like, and then I try to settle down for the rest of my life, I've got all these things to compare my wife to, and that is damaging to her. The flip side is true. You have every guy that you've ever been with to compare your future husband to, and it becomes damaging to that relationship. Now, can God forgive that? Absolutely. God saves people out of sexual gross sins all the time. And I was sharing with my group this morning, in the context, these people are coming out of gross sexual sin, where they would have gone to the temple on their worship day to have sex with each other. So he is probably not talking to the virgin class here. Okay, like he's talking to people who are saved out of blatant, gross, regular sexual sin. He's calling them to something and he's saying, look, you can't do this anymore. And, and we can see the reasons behind that because this is damaging to the good relationship that God wants us to have with our spouse. Pornography is the same thing. It breeds discontentment, adultery, sex outside of marriage. Okay, I think I shared this a couple weeks ago. The sexual relationship between a husband and wife is best enjoyed when you know there's absolute trust and faithfulness in that relationship. That it's not going to be violated. That I have complete freedom and openness with my wife. That I don't have to worry about her wandering off with another man. And comparing me to that man that she's now with. I'm able to enjoy the thing that God has designed for me. When it's in the confines of marriage. When I'm not trying to compare it to something else. When I don't have to worry about my spouse, my faithful partner wandering off to someone else. Why does God want us to be with a believer and not an unbeliever if we're a Christian? Because he wants what's best for us. You're talking about a hindrance to sanctification if you're in that, that relationship with an unbeliever. Because they want something totally different in life. You're saying, I want this in life. They're saying, I don't want that in life. I'm not submitted to the gospel. I'm not pursuing sanctification. Sanctification is, is unbelievably pursued in a marriage relationship because you are constantly having to fight your selfishness and your pride to serve someone else. 
It's a great avenue for sanctification. It's a great way to apply what Philippians 2 says about considering the needs of others above your own need. Because you're with someone else every day. Every day, the closest person in your life is to you, and you have to figure out a way to serve them unselfishly. It's a great avenue for sanctification. You don't get that with an unbeliever when, when, they are, when they are, their mindset is totally different than yours. Now, Paul says if you're married to an unbeliever and then you get saved, he says stay with the unbeliever. Then that's when missionary marriage is okay. He says stay with the unbeliever because you might convert that person. The marriage relationship is too important to walk away even if you're now saved and they're not. That's a difficult situation to be in. For one of the spouses to get saved and realize, wow, we have been doing things really wrong for a long time, but the other spouse doesn't see it yet. Paul says you stay with them as long as they'll tolerate you. He says you make them leave. You make them get annoyed with what you're doing in life now. He says you don't leave them. You stay as long as you can. He tells us not to marry someone unless it's... If they're divorced, unless it's for sexually immoral reasons. Why? Why Why is that a good thing? Think about the dangers that would come from marrying someone who just decided to leave their spouse. What does that potentially set you up for? The exact same experience. See, if someone has been, has been damaged and hurt because their spouse left them for somebody else, they weren't the one that left. They were the faithful one that was committed. So Jesus, I think, is saying, look, it's okay to marry someone that was, that was left for sexually immoral reasons. They, they did everything they could to stay in that relationship, most likely. The other one left. But if you try to marry someone who mutual split or we just got tired of each other, what's going to prevent them from getting tired of you and wanting out of the relationship with you, just like they wanted out of their relationship with their previous spouse? See, these are good laws. These are good reasons to be sexually moral the way that God tells us to, because it's the best. It's the best way. It protects us. It guards us. It allows us to enjoy what God created. If he created it, we can guarantee that he probably knows how to best use it, right? Like it's his gift to us. We should probably get the instructions on how to enjoy it from the one who created it. God's saying this is the best way to enjoy the sexual relationship. Why should I embrace God's will for sex? Second thing in our notes. Why should I embrace... God's will for sex. Number one, God's purpose. God's purpose. You started in obedience. Continue in obedience is what he's telling this church. See, he's already told him, he says, I'm about to urge you and instruct you and, and encourage you to, to live this way. And what's great is that you're already doing this. Paul's reminding him, be obedient to this, this sexual immorality discussion I'm about to give you. And the reason you should be obedient is because you started off being obedient. See, when we got saved, we admitted, I'm a sinner. I need grace. I need salvation. And we obeyed the gospel is what the New Testament says. You obey the gospel by repenting of your sins, putting your faith in Christ. So our relationship to God starts in obedience, and it should continue in obedience is what Paul's saying. So why do we, why do we embrace God's will for sex? Because he's telling us to do it, and we started by obeying him, so we should continue in obeying him. 1 Peter 4, 1-3 says, The time of ignorance, the time of living like Gentiles, has passed, if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, it's time to put away living like a Gentile, like an unsaved person. Put it away. You obeyed the gospel, obey in this matter as well. 
You submit it to the gospel, submit to God's teaching about sex is what Paul's saying. This is where it gets really unnerving and, and, and really scary. Because look what it says. We'll read verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you. The second point is, yes, God's purpose. We're, we're to obey because God has, has called us to salvation to be holy. It's the purpose of the gospel. Ephesians 2. We were saved for good works. Okay? You were saved to be holy. But secondly, God's vengeance. God's bringing judgment on sexually immoral people. Don't let that slip your mind there. God's the avenger of people who are sexually immoral. If you read scripture, and I wrote this down in my notes, sexually immoral people don't go to heaven. That's what the New Testament says. Sexually immoral people do not go to heaven. Now, we're not talking about people who have committed sexually immoral acts that have been forgiven by God's grace and made righteous and, and declared righteous by, by the work of Christ. People who engage in consistent, habitual sexual immorality have no claim to be confident in their salvation. They have no right to claim salvation if they're going to live in blatant sexual immorality. Look what um, it says in Galatians 5, 19-21. Now the works of the flesh are evidence, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and, these, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things, they won't inherit the kingdom of God. And we're not elevating sexual immorality above other sins. I'm just telling you, sexually immoral people don't go to heaven. People who engage in habitual sexual immorality, they don't go to heaven. In the same way that people who engage in habitual drunkenness don't go to heaven. Those fleshly acts demonstrate that they were not saved, they are not saved, and they need to be saved. Look what it says in Revelation 21. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Sometimes lying doesn't get elevated to the same status as sexual immorality. All liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Sexually immoral people don't go to heaven. Liars don't go to heaven. Look what it says in Revelation 22, 14, and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, and sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Liars. They're not there. People who habitually sin don't go to heaven. That's what 1 John teaches us. 1 John just talks in general about sin. You practice sinning, you're not saved. Now, does that mean that someone can't slip and fall into sexual immorality and, and, and not be saved? No. 
But what it does say is that someone who falls into sexual immorality, who is saved, will experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the discipline of a loving Heavenly Father, and they won't stay in it. They won't stay in it. God will not permit His children to walk this way. Because walking this way shows you're not really His child. Make sure you understand that. We're not talking about people losing their salvation. And we're not saying that Christians can't mess up in these areas. What we are saying is that Christians cannot live habitually like this and go to heaven. Which means if you're someone who is engaged in sexual immorality right now, or in the future falls into this, you need to heed the warnings of Scripture that to continue doing those things would demonstrate that you're not saved. And God uses warnings like this to draw real saved people back to Him. So you don't lose your salvation, but the way we don't lose our salvation partly is because God warns us and He uses those warnings to keep us saved, to keep us being faithful to Him. Paul says, God's the avenger. Jesus is the avenger. He will avenge sexual immorality. The the responsibility that we have right now is to make sure that His vengeance on our sexual immorality happened on the cross and not when He comes back. Because God's wrath got poured out on my sins on the cross. Which means if I, if I fall sexually in my relationship with Lauren, that sin has been dealt with on the cross. And if I fall sexually, I'm a Christian, the Holy Spirit's going to convict me, draw me back to God, and draw me to forgiveness. My sin's been dealt with on the cross. And God's the avenger. To live in sexual immorality is to show that you're not saved according to what Paul has to say. God offers forgiveness? Absolutely. Romans 8, 1. If you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. So if you're truly a Christian, you won't be judged for your sexual immorality. But you will come back to God through conviction and seeking forgiveness. But I was sharing with my group this morning, just because we don't receive condemnation doesn't mean we don't receive the reaping of what we sowed. Galatians 6, 7 through 8 says that we will reap what we sow. So even as a Christian, we can fall into sexual immorality. Christians fall into sexual immorality. David, a good example in Scripture, someone who fell into sexual immorality. But what happened? Psalm 52 happened where he came back to God and cried out for forgiveness. Because he was a man after God's own heart. Not perfect. Absolutely not. But also not to content to stay in his sin. Fell into sexual immorality but said, whoa, this is wrong. Got confronted by a man named Nathan and he said, you're right, Nathan. God's word is right. I've got to get right in this area. And he came back to God, Psalm 52. <clears throat> he still got a lot of consequences for his sin, though. He didn't get condemnation. <clears throat> Ultimately, that sin was dealt with on the cross, but he got consequences. His, his family was never the same because of that act. And so even if we are Christians, we should heed the warnings of Scripture that even if we are a Christian and we fall into sexual immorality, we are not exempt from the reaping of sowing in that way. Number three, God's Holy Spirit. We've got God's purpose. Why should we embrace God's will for sex? Because that's God's purpose. He saved us to be holy. He saved us to be holy in this way. Secondly, because God's coming back to judge sexually immoral people. We have responsibility to turn from it now. Receive that forgiveness. And number three, God's given us the Holy Spirit. Back in 1 Thessalonians 4. Verse 7, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness or that purpose. He didn't save us so we could stay impure. He saved us so we could be holy. But then verse 8, therefore whoever disregards this, disregards not man, 
but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You might want to write this down underneath this. We have been equipped with the Holy One to bring us to holiness. We have been equipped with the Holy One to bring us to holiness. The promise of the New Covenant in the Old Testament is that God was going to write His law on the hearts of His people. He does that through the Holy Spirit. We have been indwelt by the Holy One. Holy Spirit, co-equal with God. Every attribute of God, the Father, belongs to the Holy Spirit. We are indwelt by the Holy One who is pushing us towards holiness. We have absolutely no excuse to say, I can't help it. I just struggle with sexual immorality. Because the Bible tells us that he that is in us is greater than anything in the world. We're indwelt by the Holy One who pushes us to holiness. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may may be able to endure it. We've been equipped with the Holy Spirit, which means that there is no temptation that we have to give in to. Paul's ultimately saying that to reject his teaching about sexual immorality is to reject God. He said in verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Paul says, this doesn't come from me, this is a divine command. Verse 7, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. This is a divine calling. This is divine purpose. This isn't something that the church makes up and wants to rob people of their sexual joy. This comes directly from God. It's a divine command. It's a divine calling. When we reject it, we reject the divine Holy Spirit. It says, therefore, who disregards this? Disregards not man, but God. So, you can reject the Bible's teaching on sexual immorality, everything we've looked at today, how to enjoy sex the way that God's designed it. You can reject that and say, nope, you're not rejecting me, you're not rejecting anybody else in this church. You reject God is what Paul says. This comes from God, so when you reject it, you're rejecting God. And it brings divine judgment, like we've already said in verse 6. Divine command, divine calling, divine rejection brings divine judgment. We're going to stop there today, um, so I want to encourage you guys to look over this more this week. Look over 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8, because next week we're going to look at how we please God with sex. We're going to walk through what Paul tells us to do practically. What are we supposed to do to stay away from sexual immorality and instead to engage in God-honoring sex? Before we close, I want to open up if anybody has any questions or, or thoughts to kind of add to what we've looked at so far. That this is what God says about sex. This is what society says about sex. This is, we're starting into why we should embrace God's will for sex. And then we're going to look at how we can please Him with it next week. Any thoughts or, or questions that that brings up about what we've said so far about this topic?
right, what I want you to, what I want to encourage you to do as a, as a means of practical application. Um, I saw some different individuals, some different pastors that had done this. Um, for those that are married, um, for those that aren't married, this week I want you to think in terms of being married. Okay? I want you to write down the consequences that would come from being sexually immoral in a marriage relationship. I want you to think through what would the consequences potentially be if I were to disregard God's teaching about sexual immorality in my own marriage. Um, I was reading through the list of, of what some of these guys wrote down. And I can tell you right now, if I read that list every day, it would do a whole lot to keep me from ever falling sexually. To examine that list. This is what it would cost me. This is what it would cost me to disregard what God has called me to. So I want to encourage you to do that week too. To, to spend some time thinking through what would it cost me to disregard God's teaching on this topic for those that are married in your marriage, for those that aren't married if you are in a marriage relationship. Like think in terms of the future. If I'm in a married relationship, what would it cost me to be sexually immoral? What would the consequences be? Um, so that you can kind of see God's goodness in calling us to faithfulness in a marriage relationship. This is the damaging effects of what sexual immorality would look like. And like I said, I encourage you to be back next week so that we can look at um, how specifically in these verses God calls us through Paul's writing to please God uh, with our sex. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have instructed us about this difficult topic. We know that our culture, our society is certainly trying to educate us about how to, um, how to enjoy sex, how to understand sex. So, God, we are thankful for the counter-teaching that you give us through your word about this topic. God, I'm so grateful and thankful that as the all-good creator of the universe, that when you created man and woman, you were faithful to give good gifts to us. God, I'm grateful and thankful that, that you created sex for us. You created it to be enjoyed and that you've been faithful to instruct us very clearly about how to enjoy it. And God, I pray that we would, we would preach to ourselves from the word to contradict everything that society tells us that is false about this. God, help us to recognize the message of society that it wants us to, to enjoy sex ultimately in a way that will not bring joy to our life. God, help us to get our instructions from you, the creator of and the giver of this good gift. God, I pray that we would understand how you define it and how you instruct us about it. God, I pray for those that are single in our church that you would, you would give them discernment about their future marriage relationships. God, I pray that you would call some in this church to, to pursue singleness, that they would be able to serve you unhindered from the responsibilities that come from being in a family. God, for those that have already identified that, that they have an intense desire to be married, to enjoy the sexual relationship the way that you've designed it, God, I pray that you would allow them to be very intentional to get ready and prepared for that relationship. That they would channel all their sexual desire into getting ready for a God-honoring marriage. God, that you'd protect them from trying to satisfy that sexual relationship with somebody else in fornication. That you would protect them from trying to satisfy it through lust and pornography. 
God, I pray that you'd put a hedge of protection around our single people in our church. That you would protect them from the temptations of Satan to destroy them through sexual immorality. God, I pray that they would turn to you in your goodness. That they would wait on you patiently. That they would trust in your goodness to provide for them exactly what you want for them. God, for our married couples in our church, God, I pray that you would... You would teach them contentment in their marriage. God, that they would resist any temptation to step outside of that marriage. God, that you would guard their spouses from, from protection at work. God, that you protect their spouses at home. God, that they would be drawn to each other in that covenant marriage that they signed up for. That they committed to you. God, they would learn contentment like Paul talks about in Philippians 4. A contentment that is all satisfying and joyful. God, I pray that you would continue to teach us next week as we continue to look into your word. That we would be, we would be drawn to your goodness in this area. We would submit to it, that we would trust in it, that we would have faith that what you say about sex is right and good. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.